Welcome back to True Crime Tried. It's a podcast where the planets align. Three friends chat true crime, astrology, and any other weird bullshit we can fit into this podcast. We are your hosts, Hannah, Sarah, and Meredith. Welcome to the Big Five O. Woo! How did I land this? Because I did too. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I pushed us off of it. <laughs> oh. Speaking of Hannah's too, I have gotten lots of very positive feedback Ooh. about your episodes on Mr. Douchey Waffle. Uh, Mr. Cook. Yeah, that dude. Whatever his name is, even I couldn't keep his first name straight, which is why I did not use it. Edgar. <laughs> Eric <laughs> Edgar, like whatever, man. Thank you again for those episodes, Hannah. From who? From my family members. Okay, thank you. For some other minor housekeeping, we are going to welcome Maryland as our 37th state. So we only have 13 to go. And then we have a little bit of an uptick in our New York listeners. So thank you, New York. Hello, hello. Awesome. And we are sitting at 31 countries, and I can't remember all the ones that we've talked about, but we're up to 31. Wow. Not bad. And then today, we are recording on St. Patrick's Day, but there's another saint that I just learned about today, and I'm super excited about it. It's St. Gertrude. Have you guys heard of St. Gertrude? No. No. St. Gertrude was a Benedictine nun and a mystic, and Mm. she was born on January 6th of 1256, and she died on November 17th of 1302, and she is the patron saint of cats. (gasps) Oh, Wow, we should have guessed that. (laughs) That's great. So happy St. Patrick's Day, even though this episode airs afterwards, and happy St. Gertrude's Day. And we're also technically recording on the Virgo full moon. Oh, yes. Although all of that stuff will be in the past when you hear this, but. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Anyway. The cars are out in force tonight. Oh, my God. Mating cars. (sighs) Maybe it's right by a stop sign, and they all just, like take off yeah they are very excited to show off how loud their engines are when they zoom up and down this supposedly quiet residential street there's like nothing to fucking assholes here it's just a residential street i don't i don't understand yeah that reminds me i was driving through berkeley after training one day and i was taking side streets home because the freeway was already super backed up Mm -hmm. and through one of the side streets there's like these little signs where it's like drive like your children live here so it's like trying to tell you to like be more like relaxed about your I speed hate my and, kids but then i'm like eh, i don't have kids so it doesn't apply to me and then it said drive like your pets live here and then i was like oh. okay i'm slowing down that's like that one got me that like they knew work. they knew who their market was on that one they're like 
we know not everyone cares about children anymore, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, it was like but our pet children because I, I it gave me enough time to think about it, like I don't have kids, whatever. Kids should know not to run out into the street. And then it was like drive like your pets live here on like two signs later, and I was like, oh my god, I, okay. You're like fair enough. That Fine. Touché, yes. street signs. That is a successful like warning campaign. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that works on me for sure. All the feels for Udio. Should I get started? All right, so tonight I'll be telling you about this guy named Charles Frederick Albright. He was born on August 10th, 1933, and from here on out, I'll just refer to him as Albright instead of by his first name. When he was three weeks old, he was adopted by a young woman, Del Albright, and her husband, Fred. You'll see why I'm referring to them this way. Del really did call the shots in this relationship. Ha <laughs> ha, like, I want a baby, we're getting a baby. Yeah. <laughs> it's Del Albright and her husband, Fred Albright. <laughs> like, okay. I love that. <laughs> they lived in this middle-class neighborhood called Oak Cliff, which at the time was a quaint residential area just across the river from downtown Dallas. Okay. So this is in Texas. Del told Albright that growing up, that his birth mother had been a bright young law student. So he has in his mind that he's destined for greatness because his mom was smart, biologically speaking. But she had secretly married one of her classmates in law school and that um, when she became pregnant and her dad found out that he forced them to annul their marriage and give the baby up for adoption or else he would cut her out of the will and force them out on the streets kind of like without any way. So that was that okay. was Del's story to Del, her adoptive son. That's creative. Sure. Uh, <laughs> that's dramatic. Yeah, it's dramatic. Del was a very strict and attentive mother. She always wanted the best for her son. And she also expected the same out of him. So was there was he an always only child. He was an only child. He was their only adoptive son. So there was always this neighborhood talk about how odd she was. And even though she and Fred were fairly well off financially speaking, Dell would scrimp and save. She had never bought herself a new dress. She would only ever buy and mend secondhand clothing. And she would even go so far as to just retrieve bones that had been thrown out by the local butcher to use for making soup. I mean, a hmm. good bone broth. Yeah, but like would never actually buy like the prime cuts of meat Can't or anything. You get a just bone get the, for free the at, the, at the butcher if you just ask. That yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, she would she retrieve wasn't... the bones that were that were thrown out. Oh no, I meant going up to like the counter just asking for a bone. I mean, it's but, also like uh, dumpster the 30s. diving is a. It's the 30s. Like he literally probably just hadn't actually thrown them outside in a dumpster, but like had put them aside for dogs or something, and then she's like, "Oh, yeah. I'll take those." Kind of I'm thing. just like a dog. <laughs> yeah. Before school each day, Dell would have Albright practice piano for 30 minutes at least, um, and then gave him more work at home than the schools had even assigned to him. She taught Holy him- fuck. Yeah. She taught him other classical arts like oil painting and poetry. And so now her hard, her hard work paid off, and Albright was a promising young pupil and moved up two grades in elementary school. I gotta say, I think Fred- was super happy that Dell had someone else to like focus her attention on. Yeah, exactly right. Friends <laughs> like, like oh. Oof. I have a, I have a breath of relief here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dell also introduced Albright to the world of taxidermy at age eleven. Why are you say taxes? Because it is tax season. Taxes. Yeah, no, it is tax season, but no taxidermy. I love taxidermy, but it always keeps getting brought up with murderers. <laughs> So she signed him up through this mail order course. What the fuck? Uh, and then the, you like sign in. Did they ship you? Like a dead squirrel? They ship you the books and materials. I don't think that oh. they shipped the animals. Oh. I think you had to get those yourself and you learn how roadkill. through well, that's the academy. Also bad. Yeah. So that's encouraging like one of the 
things on the triad for serial killers. Killing animals. Yeah. Thanks, Del. So they signed up for this course through the Northwestern School of Taxidermy. He would work on dead birds that he found. But it was also okay. mentioned elsewhere that he did have a small pellet gun that he would use for squirrels and such to practice on. Hmm. It was the 30s. I feel like that happened a lot, actually. Yeah. Dell has a lot of uh, wide-ranging hobbies. Yes. Oil paintings, She's trying to get him music, involved in everything taxidermy. to be really good at all the things he tries. Yeah. She's probably a Gemini. <laughs> oh, yeah. She can't even, like, pick one. It turns out that she would actually be sitting right beside him and guide his work. So she showed him how to use all the tools, the knife that was used to cut the skull open, the tiny little spoon used to scoop out the brains, tiny scalpels required to cut away eyes from their sockets, forceps enabled these like tiny precise movements. Dell even skinned the first bird for him, showing him how shallow he should cut to prevent damage to the body and bones. She sounds also like a serial murderer. (laughs) I was going to say, I am kind of interested in those mail order course (laughs) all right (laughs) oh i should have checked and seen if it like is still standing although enough things have been taxidermy we don't need to taxidermy any more things i'll just buy the but like with all the roadkill i've i've often wondered like how hard is it really well there's that dead bird that dead lizard that wobbles brought in (laughs) two days in a fucking row into my fucking bedroom yeah it's a safe space You can take taxidermy courses online, and there is a taxidermy tube, similar to YouTube, but it's Hmm. taxidermy tube. Oh, no. All right. The other thing I wanted to do when I was at Davis was take that class where you learn how to be a butcher. Oh. But it never, like, I never felt like I could actually ask Scott to pay for that. Yeah, that's not really as applicable as the other skill sets. (laughs) Butcher up mice sometimes. Yeah. I think knowing how to cut meat is very beneficial. Yeah. We just had a tri-tip and you've got to cut that a certain way. Otherwise, you just ruin it. So. Yeah. I don't know. I'm down for butcher class. So, Albright spent hours on his taxidermy courses, preparing birds, arranging feathers and skin and facial structure to make them look as lifelike as possible. I mean, we all know bad taxidermy when we see it. I think I (laughs) follow an account called Bad Taxidermy on Instagram, obviously. (laughs) One of the easiest parts to mess up is definitely the eyes. And so Albright knew this and fawned over the gleaming jars of these artificial glass eyes at the local taxidermist shop. Okay, oh. time out. Do you remember the Criminal Minds episode? Yes. Where the guy that's what I was thinking. Uh, was taking over his like father's taxidermy shop, I think, and like people were complaining about his skills, so he was murdering people and putting human eyes into the taxidermy. Yes. How did that work? Poorly. Because they deteriorate. Well, they were complaining because they're like, the eyes aren't right. You could probably preserve them, but it worked poorly. The eyes were not right. Okay, yes. The the eyes need to be just so. And he he fawned over all these artificial eyes because he wanted, you know, the best, because his mother expected the best of them. So he's like, I want the best of the best. But Del would say, no, they're too expensive. There has to be a cheaper option. Um, So she and Albright would- mix messages. I know, right? I would want the best, but also you need to be frugal. She and Albright would comb through her sewing kit instead and select tiny black buttons. So on the display in the glass-paneled china hutch in the Albright house living room, there were dozens of beautifully preserved birds, except they all had these dull buttons for eyes. That's fucking creepy. My china hutch has a bunch of skeletons in it. (laughs) I thought Hannah would love this part. There's skulls, like, of different animals and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All right. 
Albright grew up in this strict household, manners instilled in him before he could even walk. He was pushed through school by his mother to succeed or face consequences at home. Dell was the driver of it all, and husband Fred, as expected, was kind of just the peacekeeper. He just kept his mouth shut <laughs> yeah. to not get his Stay ass out in of the trouble. Way. <laughs> That's being the peacekeeper. Yeah. So Albright's upbringing certainly shaped him in a drastic way. Overbearing mother is another, it's not on the triad, but if but we made a it's parallelogram. A- there oh, yeah. be there. <laughs> yep, she's always there looking over the shoulder. Yep. Even as the youngest in his class, though, he was well-loved by his peers and was actually pretty popular. I was the youngest in my class, and I was a joy. <laughs> I mean, he was two years younger than everyone, right? Because he got pushed ahead two grades. I skipped up one grade, but I was still yeah. kind of at the bottom. He enjoyed, like, whatever kind of freedom he could have when he was out of the actual house, right? So he was... Mm-hmm. A little bit of a prankster, and his classmates delighted in this because it was entertaining. So he had actually made some bad marks in school for shooting rubber bands at teachers when they weren't looking, or sneaking out of study hall. One time he accidentally set his chemistry teacher's dress on fire. Quote unquote, accidentally. Yeah, and he actually failed a few courses because he was just too bored to study. He's like, I get this, but I don't care about it. Mm-hmm. We know Dell never would have allowed that, though, right? So what did he do? He snuck into the school office, stole some blank report cards, filled them in with all A's, and then proudly showed them to his parents with the teachers and principal's signatures on there, perfectly forged, because he's an artist. Yeah. Dell, you did this. <laughs> so Dell was a Capricorn. Okay, I could also see that to you. Industrious, mm-hmm. you want to be the best at everything, you want to succeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... Fred was a Taurus. And Fred's like, I'm just going to sit on the couch and be quiet. It's <laughs> He's like, like, this makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> this family dynamic. All right. Albright would later explain, quote, I just didn't know what I was doing. If anyone tells the truth, they will say I never did a mean thing in all my life. But I did a lot of mischievous things just to show off for the older kids. All right. Sure, but it sure worked ready. in this case. Like, yeah. Like sometimes you're just that annoying kid that's always, that everyone is annoyed by. But it worked in this case. Like, they liked him. Yeah. He was entertaining. He was always something to look forward to watching. Anyway, he graduated from Adamson High School at age 15, and miraculously was already a property owner. Dell and Fred wow. had purchased um, homes in their neighborhood and gave one to him. At 15? Which he then went. Yep. They, so they, they had kind of worked in real estate for a while. So they gave him one, and then he went off and sold that to buy more lots of land. And hmm. the Dallas Times Herald even published an article about him with the headline, World's Youngest Real Estate Man Amassing Nest Egg for College. Oh. I mean, it sounds like a heartwarming story, I guess. But also, to which I say, must be fucking nice. But also, it's like, um, <laughs> nice to be born rich. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. there's no pulling up by the bootstraps here. You were given a fucking house. Yeah. Albright's mischief wasn't over then, though. He began getting into other types of trouble. Including breaking into a church and then into a little shop and stealing a nice watch. His relatives assumed that Albright had resorted to the theft because his mother was so stingy. But he had that so-called nest egg for himself. So, you know, why is he doing this? It sounds to me like more he just enjoyed the the thrills out of it. Also might be kind of bored. Yeah, a little bit. So Dell continued her deluge of strict parenting since Albright was still technically a minor. She dragged him to church. Methodist church, by the way, uh, every <laughs> every Sunday. God. <laughs> <laughs> she enforced an 8 p.m. bedtime throughout his teens. Whoa! Yeah, 8 p.m. Sorry, you're 16, you have to go to bed at 8. Okay. There are like five-year-olds that have a, la- that have a later bedtime. Right, yeah. 
It even went so far as if Albright had a date, she would insist on <gasps> chauffeuring them. Ew. And then would watch them through her rearview mirror while she was driving them to wherever they're going to go. She would call the girl's parents and promise them that her son would never do anything inappropriate. Well, now that Why? you called me and told me that, I'm worried. Yeah, right? I think you're going to be doing something inappropriate. <laughs> there actually was a commercial that kept playing when I was watching the Olympics, and it was some sort of car, but it has, like, cameras everywhere, and so, like, the mom and dad were in the front, and, like, their daughter and her boyfriend were in the back, and they were, like, just holding hands, and, like, the dad's like, just so you know, I can see everything, and I was like, just let her hold hands. Jeez, what that's so creepy. This? I'm like... And, like, what is the policing of your daughter's body? 2022, y'all. Yeah. Anyway. So, still, he's stifled by his mother. He's technically still a teen, but he needs to get away, clearly. Mm-hmm. He enrolled in North Texas State College in Denton and was away from his mother's close watch, finally. She didn't go with him? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> is he sure? <laughs> she, like, has an apartment, like, two doors down. Right, yeah. By the end of his freshman year, though, he was arrested for being part of a student burglary ring that had broken into multiple stores nearby and stole seven, several hundred dollars worth of stuff. Albright mm. defended himself by saying he didn't know that the items were stolen. He was asked to hold on to them for a few days by the other students. Sure, Betty. Cool. Dell, of course, went to the store owners and pleaded and tried to get them to accept reimbursement from her for what was taken. She tried to persuade the judge that was overseeing this to act as her son's lawyer. She even asked that she be allowed to take his place in prison. Oh, Lord. Yeah, no, that's not how it works, There's sweetie. something wrong with Zell. <laughs> mm-hmm. Besides being a Capricorn. Yeah. Albright went to prison for a year, giving Dell a hell of a time to be able to work up some cover story to be able to tell everybody mm. around. Her neighborhood couldn't possibly be made aware that, you know, her son had become a convicted felon, right? No. So, gotta keep up those appearances. The golden child. <laughs> When he got out, though, Albright turned to Arkansas State Teachers College in Arkansas. Okay, so that's further away from your mother. A little further away, yep. Um, He began dating a lovely young English major named Betty Hester. And this Betty is spelled B-E-T-T-Y-E, which is kind of cool, like bet ya. Bet ya. Hmm. But I'm going to call her Betty because bet ya is. Betcha won't take me on a date if you <laughs> take mine. <laughs> so... He's enamored with her. He tells everyone he's making plans to marry her. He's fantastic in the sciences, and he didn't even really need to study. (laughs) What? I thought you were going to say the sack. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm doing this a little bit on purpose, because, like, when I was writing this, I'm like, there's ways that I can emphasize these. I was just (laughs) like, and you're you're playing me like a fucking violin, okay? (laughs) Just to watch Hannah's (laughs) eyes go, ah! Ah! Uh, he's fantastic in these sciences, not the sex. Um, although he hardly even had to study. Yeah. It was said around school that he was going to go far, that he had a lot of potential ahead of him. And he had talked about going to medical school and even becoming a surgeon. Those are the things they used to say about me. And look where I am now. Garbage. So. UC Davis is a big fucking deal. <laughs> yeah, PhD, whatever. Uh, <laughs> he continued the Mr. Popularity frat boy lifestyle. He was... Ooh. President of the French Club, business manager of the yearbook, member of mm. the school choir, halfback on the football team. When he signed up for a drawing course, the art professor there was so impressed with his chiseled jawline and good looks that he made him into the class model. <laughs> Barf. Okay. <laughs> okay. Like, uh. Jesus. The pranks continued here, too. So the most noteworthy one was the one that he played on one of his close friends, who remains unnamed. 
But this guy had recently broken up with this beautiful woman with striking almond-shaped eyes. And in his emotional turmoil, the friend had torn up several photographs that he had of her and threw them in a trash can in the dorm room. Weeks later, he had a new girlfriend and asked her for a photo to be able to keep with him. And one night, while staring at his new girlfriend's picture, he realized that something was wrong. He looks closer, (gasps) and he realized that her eyeballs had been cut out and replaced with the almond-shaped eyeballs of his ex-girlfriend. This is the Criminal Minds episode. (laughs) Oh, really? No, 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 but he's replacing eyeballs with different eyeballs. Oh, Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I was like, I don't think I've seen that one, but I must have. Anyway, exasperated, he leans back and he's like, oh, are you kidding me? He leans back and looks up at the ceiling. And then there, staring down at him, are more cutouts of his ex-girlfriend's eyes. (laughs) Okay, that's kind of funny. I don't really like pranks that much, but that one made me laugh. Yeah, down the hall in the men's urinal in the dorm are more eyes staring at him when he's trying to go pee. Oh my god. Everywhere he turned, her almond-shaped eyes were following him. (laughs) Oh my god. God. So he's like, are you kidding me? Everyone loves this prank and they just think he's amazing for it. But little did they know. (laughs) The joy didn't last a whole lot longer. Albright didn't stay in school, in that school anyway, for that much longer because he was expelled again after being caught with stolen goods in his backpack. But by then he and Betty were married and she was expecting and Mm. he had mouths soon to feed and a reputation to be able to uphold. So what's an Albright to do? He broke Go into <laughs> He broke into the administration's office at East Texas State University, snagged some forms, copied them, added his name, forged signatures to match, then put them back into the correct filing order in their system so that his name would appear in their records if anyone looked him up. And then he even used the registrar's typewriter so the typeface on his records would be an exact match. Holy fuck. He's smart. Yeah. This also feels really familiar to me. Uh <laughs> That's on you. Yeah, I know. Who thinks like that in depth on something though? Like, hmm, how can I get a degree without actually having to do the degree? Right? Jesus. Okay, I'm taking notes. No. <laughs> <laughs> so at age 36, several years later, clearly, Albright was hired on as a science teacher at Crandall, a small town outside of Dallas. The principal had been desperate to find a teacher all summer long, and according to the records, Albright had a master's in biology from ETSU and was apparently in progress for another master's in counseling and had planned to go for his PhD at some point. So he sounded really great. I could have been hired as a teacher before I had finished my degree, so. Yeah. Federal school. Yeah. I mean, this is just a, it's a high school, so it's not like, Mm -hmm. You would think you'd still want the BS, but. Yeah. So Albright was a fantastic biology teacher there, apparently, and people said that he could even recite from memory all the Latin names of the wild wildflower species when he took students on class field trips. That sounds like you. I know. <laughs> he helped coach the football team and... Less like you. Yeah, not so much. But he's he's always been very, like, sporty and involved in everything that he does socially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The girls in at the high school also swooned out after oh, him no. for his cool dude style. He drove a green Corvette and had alligator boots, um, oh. which apparently was like, was like fancy and like special and something nerd. to look at. <laughs> but he's like the cool young biology <laughs> the cool teacher, young teacher, you know. You know, and you're a teenager full of hormones and you're only seeing the same people over and over again. Yeah. yeah. I could see how you could get a crush on your teacher. <laughs> So understandably, the principal at Crandall High was 
simply just flabbergasted when he found an ETSU letter from an official telling him that Albright had never even earned a bachelor's degree. Oh, so they figured it out. An ETSU administrator had kept looking at his name suspiciously when they kept popping up in their records. And, huh. but he hadn't remembered ever meeting this Albright guy. So he was like, the fuck? And just alerted other officials to look into it. Okay. When confronted, Albright was ashamed and admitted to his fraud. But because the forgery was such a victimless crime, and because Albright himself, according to an ETSU administrator, was such a nice dude, that the university decided to keep the transcript scandal out of the newspapers. Such a good guy. So, Breaking the yes. law. He, he lost his job, but they didn't want it to be out there because it was also embarrassing that the school was bamboozled. Like, it looked bad on the principal. Like, you didn't vet this guy, you know, because he was in such a rush to hire someone. Albright pleaded guilty to fraud and um, received a year's probation. All right. All right. So now we're in the 70s. Okay. Albright's back in his old Dallas neighborhood, living in a house that's not too far from his parents' home um, in that same neighborhood in Oak Cliffs, one of the houses that his family owns. Betty had separated from him in 1965 and then formally divorced him. Right? Yeah. She's like, no, I'm too smart for this. Yeah. A lot of times they stick around, but I'm I'm proud of Betty. Yeah. Did they have children? They had, uh, I believe, a daughter. Okay. She formally divorced him in 1974 and moved far, far away. And then I don't, yeah. I don't have any other record of her. Okay. All the neighbors knew of him was that he was a nice, a nice man who could master anything, but just didn't simply care to settle down with any sort of normal nine to five type job. He had money from his parents and his real estate work, and his wife had had a job basically as the high school English teacher nearby, so everything was fine, and, you know, and then she takes off kind of thing. But during all this time, like, the 70s when his marriage is on the rocks and on its way out kind of thing, up until, I guess, later in this timeline, he wouldn't ever have a job for more than three months. He worked as a designer at some point for a company that built airplanes, then as an illustrator for a patent company, because he's good at the art. He has a lot of skills. He was a renowned carpenter and helped people with their projects around town. He collected wine bottles from the famous Il Sorrento restaurant in Dallas, hoping to start his own winery. Hmm. Uh, He bought a lathe and made baseball bats because he's always been very involved with sports. He collected old movie posters and got them autographed from a nearby theater from the stars whenever they come visit. It's like autographed by who? (laughs) Yeah. The manager. The stars that are on the movie posters. Yeah. Like he had a lot of Marilyn Monroe ones too that he had collected from like way back when, but. Okay. On a lark, he had gone to a Mexican border town and become a bullfighter. The fuck? Calling himself Senor Albright from Dallas. Very creative. He did try very hard with that one. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. On another whim, he got his beautician's license when he found out that one of his friends uh, was a stylist in a nearby salon. And he then persuaded that same salon to hire him with, like, no experience at all. It was just like, okay. you gotta start somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah. When Allwright told us the stylist friend that he was also an accomplished artist, that friend paid him $250 to paint a picture of his wife. So weird. <laughs> uh, right? <laughs> like, can you do a portrait of my wife? A nude portrait? I don't think it was nude. Okay. I think it was just, just like a family. Yeah, still like a like nice weird. She has to just sit there, but I don't. She didn't sit there. I think he went either from photograph or mm. from memory or something. But um, that's better because he worked a really long time on this. So he worked for several weeks on just the painting uh, mm-hmm. and insisted that he needed to keep working on one special feature, the most difficult part of the painting. So the guy's like the getting really impatient. The eyes. The nose. <laughs> The guy's getting really impatient and he goes to see what's going on with it. So he goes over to his house and sees the work in progress. And it's a this massive six foot by three foot portrait. 
what the fuck? Incredibly realistic, down to the last freckle. Everything looked great except for one thing. The eyes. eyes. The place where they were supposed to be was still just like blank white canvas. Also, that's a big canvas. And that seems like such Mm -hmm. a weird thing to hang in your own house. This gigantic picture of yourself. Yeah. Right? Yeah. (sighs) Mm. Creepy. Maybe he didn't actually ask for it to be that big, but he did it anyway. Oh. Yeah, hanging on the ceiling so she's always watching you. Oh. Ew. <laughs> eyes. <laughs> the eyes. So after all this time, Albright hadn't even begun working on the eyes. Like, he made zero progress because it was still just plain canvas underneath it. Mm-hmm. If it was like as, some, as if something was holding him back and he preferred to the portrait to remain living or remain in his living room on the easel. Cause he just, Eyeless. Yeah. So the friend asked Charles, when are you going to paint the eyes? And his response is... When I'm ready to. Hmm. What? 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 So it's like, my $250, man, has just been hanging out here. It's just eyes, yeah. too. Yeah. To, as, Months later. As a non-artist. It's just fucking eyes, man. It's just eyes. They're hard to get right. <laughs> Months later, Albright finally decided to finish the eyes. He painted them repeatedly, though, to get them just right. Down to the eyelashes, the shadows under the eyelashes, the corners of the eyes, the glow to the whites to make them look perfectly spherical. It was all perfect and finally finished. So his friend remarked on how his wife's eyes were so perfectly recreated that they seemed to follow a person when they walked around the room. <laughs> this is the creepiest fucking painting. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But, like, that's just such a good mark, though, of, like, to be able to make eyes look like they follow you in a painting. Sure. So he's actually not bad at eyes. He he's not bad at them. He's weird about it. He had hesitance to finish them. Because he, he likes them. I think the idea was that he liked for so movie. long he wasn't allowed to have good eyes in all of his artistry, which was the taxidermy growing up. Okay. And so to have good eyes on something was like, I know they need to be good, but, like, how? Why? Do I, how do I do this? Like, mentally, I think it was a hurdle for him. Okay. Well, I guess at least he didn't, like, paint this beautiful portrait and then, like, put I know. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, no. That would be so awful. <laughs> uh, that might have been a bigger red flag, I guess. Yeah, that would have. Eyes so good. They follow people around the room. Life went on like this with him working different odd random jobs in the Dallas suburbs, but eventually Albright was up to his same dumb tricks again. He was caught stealing hundreds of dollars worth of merchandise from a local hardware store and received a two-year prison sentence. Hmm. But he served less than six months of it before being released. Good behavior, I'm sure. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. During this time, he began to befriend and gain the trust of his neighbors. He was even asked by local residents to babysit their children. What? Like Arvin! (laughs) Is he a cannibal? I don't, well, I don't think we'll so. We'll see. <laughs> his mother ended up passing away in 1981, and a dark shadow seemed to fall over him. His bumper rails were off. I was going to say, I feel like the sun should come out, but... The sun yeah. should come out, but also, like, but she's been she's been so the guiding factor all his, his life. life. Yeah, like... Yeah. yeah. She's just been such a force of nature for him. Yes. So even though he and his mother had had a strained relationship, he knew that she wasn't proud of him and all his failures. But he honored her, honored her by buying her the only brand new dress she'd ever worn, the one that she would be buried in. Del, you could have bought a dress. Del, Del's annoying. <laughs> Too fucking frugal. Too fucking frugal. Capricorns are very frugal, but. He cried at her funeral, probably feeling the guilt of letting her down. It was around this time, though, in 1981, that a dark secret was percolating to the surface. There was a word going around law enforcement that while visiting some neighbor friends of his, Albright had sexually molested their 14-year-old daughter. Ah. 
See, Ew. Armin didn't touch the kids. No, he was just a I'm good baby. I'm still on Armin's side. <laughs> the girl's parents had tried to keep the matter quiet, especially at church. Ooh. What the fuck is up with these people and trying to keep up appearances? But I mean, I feel like if they did say something about it, especially in the 80s, that girl would have had a like, taint on her. Right. Yeah. So they didn't want to stigmatize their daughter. Yeah. But Albright had also worried that if he fought the charges, the story would leak and he would be also humiliated. Okay. So you just keep it quiet? So he, yeah, his pl- his thing is like, it's a story that can't possibly be true. These people are my friends. I would never touch their daughter kind of thing. And so he's denying all of it, but because he doesn't want any of it to come out on March 25th in 1985, in basically what appears to be an empty Dallas courtroom, he stood before a judge and confessed to knowingly and intentionally engaging in deviant sexual intercourse with a girl under the age of 14. So it says she's 14, Mm. but under the age of 14, I wasn't able to figure that part out specifically with all the records, but... Maybe it's at or under. Maybe the law at the time was like 15 or older was consent because consent has changed through the years. Yeah, that's true. But curious though, like, so when he was that school teacher, you know, like you mentioned, like these kids were swooning after Mm -hmm. him because he was kind of the cool dude. So it is quite possible that... Yeah. Maybe he didn't. I don't know. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it could be a rumor, but he stood by that he was innocent and that he only said, yeah, I did it because he wanted it to just go away. To avoid the publicity of it all. Exactly. So she was 14. He was 51. He received probation. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 51. Jesus Christ. And just probation? Probation. Mm -hmm. That's it? It was like years of probation, but it was probation. What the fuck? Because he had people speaking on his behalf about, you know, that he was a good dude around town, so... No, it's it's certainly weird, and I'm just going to chalk that up to being the 80s and a, a he said, she said thing, even though she's a minor. Sure. Yeah, it's disgusting either way you look at it. It is, yeah. I mean, even if she were 18 and he was 51, it would still be gross. <laughs> but legal, but gross. Yeah. He received probation. Women around town, though, couldn't and just wouldn't believe that that had happened. He was the ladies' man, courteous, respectful. So that part of his reputation was just swept under the rug, and everyone chose to believe the nicer part of him, that he was, you know, he was a a gentleman. Um, Okay. And so this, in short time, became little more than just rumor. Okay. So he personified, like, this really good, well-balanced person. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, their family's well known too because they have all those mm-hmm. properties and stuff. So yeah, and he's just always been kind of there, taking up space and being a cheerful dude, helping people out with their home projects and whatnot. So in late fall 1985, Albright fell in love with Dixie Austin, a quiet woman from Arkansas. He charmed Dixie with stories of nature and art. He took her on trail quests, hiking for salamanders. Aww. I'm sorry. <laughs> this also sounds like you. <laughs> like, I want to go for a salamander hunt. His dream, he told her, was to find a new species and be able to name it. Albrighticus. <laughs> Albrighticus. She would later report that these were the most romantic years of her life and that he was a gentle lover. Okay. Ah, man, I don't like those two words together. <laughs> gentle lover? I don't like them apart. I just don't like it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it, it speaks to his demeanor when he's in this persona. Yeah, he's... Okay. Yeah, okay. When his father, Fred, died of a heart attack in 1986... Albright inherited at least 96,000 and several homes and the still vacant properties around South Dallas. For sentimental purposes, he kept the properties still in his father's name. So at this point, Albright had made the decision to move back into his parents' home in Oak Cliff. And he and Dixie 
kind of live there. Like he brought her back down from Arkansas and they lived there together in apparent domestic bliss at 1035 El Dorado. Okay. He rented out one of the homes in South Dallas. He kept the the rest of them pretty much vacant because he was still doing little odd jobs here and there on them. Um, He rented out one of the homes in South Dallas on a street called Cotton Valley to a truck driver named Axton Schindler. Axton was a weird dude. He was known as Speedy because he talked so fast, but poorly enunciated. So I'm kind of imagining like a Boomhauer voice. That's me. Yeah. (laughs) I like the Boomhauer. Yeah. He was not a clean man, and soon the rooms of the house were filled with trash up to three feet high. The fuck? He put an automobile engine into the middle of the living room and chose to live without electricity and running water. So he used a Coleman lantern for for light at night and bottled water to wash himself. Like a camping stove? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, like the Coleman, not a stove, but like the little lanterns that have like the filament. I meant to eat, but I guess he just went out to eat. Uh, Yeah, I guess. This is why... When my parents moved away, I was like, sell the fucking rentals. Don't want I to. I don't want them. Especially yeah. in Fresno. Yeah, no. <laughs> Good fucking God. And like, I think I've said this before. My dad had to get a restraining order on one of his tenants at one point. And I'm like, I don't, no. don't want to do this. We don't want that. Don't want that. Please don't give these to me. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, guy's weird. Seems like a real nervous kind of twitchy dude. Albright's friends had all advised him to evict him and get a new renter, but friendly Albright, who had met Schindler through a, quote, female friend, said he wasn't that bad of a guy, so he just let him stay. All right, not a very good real estate magnet. Yeah. (laughs) All the while, Albright had his own secret life. He had been visiting sex workers in the red light districts all around Dallas and had been for a long time now. They all knew him well, and though he seemed to have different characters depending on which sex or sex worker he was visiting and who was telling the story. So to some women, he was little more than a platonic friend. He would pick them up and take them out to lunch, talk with them over burgers, give them spare cash to ease their worries. To others, he was a normal John, never too rough, always respectful. And then to a select few even, he was sometimes a bit violent tending, but definitely always willing to pay extra for that sort of thing. Very, um, okay. color difference between the categories. Is he multiple personality? That wasn't really speculated on from what I could find, and there wasn't much report on if there's a different, like, racial tendency, depending on his treatment of them. Pretty sure multiple personalities is, like, super fucking rare. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in the early fall of 1990, Albright's juggling his two lives. At home, he's the loving common-law now, um, husband to Dixie, esteemed carpenter in his neighborhood, spent time fixing up their home. He was installing new kitchen cabinets, putting in a skylight in the master bathroom, playing nice in the neighborhood. Now he sounds like my dad. <laughs> <laughs> he's just an everybody kind he of person. He could just be anybody. Yeah. yeah. He was a valued member of a local seniors slow pitch softball league uh, and played for both the day team and the night teams. He went out of his way to be liked. He brought sports drinks and candy all the time for his teammates, never stirred up any trouble with opposing teams. But he told Dixie one day that he was starting to hurt for cash. Albright had never been good at keeping track of finances, what with all the money going to his lady friends in secret. His lady friends. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So Dixie had been paying the bills with her check from working in a local shop to support them. And so needing some extra spending money to keep his secret lifestyle afloat, he tells her that he just took a job delivering newspapers in the dead of night for the Dallas Times Herald. He would leave at 3 a.m., and then deliver, pick up and deliver papers on an Oak Cliff route between 4 and 6, so he was never going to be too far away. And then he'll be back in bed by 6.15. And that was the only way that she agreed to this, because she hated waking up in the morning to find that he wasn't there. Okay. But Dixie's no Betty. Dixie's no Betty. Well, she's got her own job and stuff, too. And, yeah, you know, but... I'm sure she's got hobbies. 
All right. So now we're going to shift gears a little bit and we're going to go and not follow him. We're going to be following a story that's unfolding in Dallas at the time. Okay. Breaking news. Woo, woo, woo. He had started his job in like his newspaper job in fall of 1990. And then on December 13th. It was a real job. I thought it was a lie. That's still speculated on too. Oh, like neighborhood okay. Newspapers were still delivered. So I don't Okay. Did he take the job or? I wonder if he like paid like the local paper boy. Here's money for your newspapers and I will deliver like the last few of them. So or just pay a boy to do it. I don't know. Or maybe he speeds so he can get it done faster or I I don't know. Okay. Crazy pants. So possibly an actual job. Yeah. That part I couldn't actually find whether or not um, he was really there. I don't have the employment record of the town newspaper office yeah (laughs) fine all right and like a lot of that is probably you know like kids being paid under the counter anyway right so they might not have record of everybody that worked that job december 13th 1990 the first victim was found in an undeveloped lower class area in south dallas she was found naked except for her t-shirt and bra both of which were pulled up to her collarbone she had bruises around her face and chest and it was apparent that her cause of death was a gunshot wound to the back of her head Hmm. gunshot gunshot wound The man who had found her was a local, and he was so horrified by what he saw that he rushed back inside his home and brought out a flowered bedsheet to cover her body. It's a nice thought. Yeah. So the reporting police officer on the scene immediately recognized her as Mary Pratt, age 33, a well-known sex worker and well-liked by all who knew her. She wasn't the type to kind of dress the part, per se, because she seldom had any extra spending money, and she would really just kind of wear whatever was comfortable instead. Jeans, Mm -hmm. tennis shoes for all the walking, form-fitting t-shirts to be able to show off her curvy figure. That was pretty Mm -hmm. much it. She didn't dress in, like, heels and stuff. Um, She was known to often ask her regular customers to drop her off at her parents' home at the end of each night, so she still lived at home. Her parents had no idea what she did for work, and they'd all say goodnight to each other as she went to bed after her work had ended for the day. Okay. Okay. Good night, Mom. Good night, Dad. That's so weird. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it was also apparent that this was a dumped body case, which are difficult to solve because Mm -hmm. the lack of forensic evidence of the scene where the murder happened, witnesses, fingerprints, all of that. So given the types of people who had frequented the area and their criminal background, it seems like she could have been murdered by anyone. Mm. Mary Pratt's file was given to John Westphalen, a persistent investigator for the Dallas PD at the time. He brought his partner, Stan McNear, with him to the medical examiner's office to witness the autopsy, which is supposedly just a routine trip that they had to fulfill for the case. And they knew that her cause of death was going to be the gunshot wound. Like, it'd be a huge surprise if it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So they're just kind of there and they're like, yeah, we have to do this as like playing our part for this case sort of thing. And because mm-hmm. she's a sex worker, like, I don't want to apply judgment to them. Like, maybe they did really care, but typically they're just like, you know, yeah, another one bites the dust kind of attitude, which is really unfortunate. Mm-hmm. I also changed the, the terminology in all the articles that I found. The terminology was prostitute, but sex worker is the correct term. Yeah. So anyway, the pathologist, Dr. Elizabeth Peacock, which like, <laughs> sounds like another like book character. I love it. That's amazing. Dr. Peacock. She was starting her work, making note of uh, Mary's appearance that she had a couple of tattoos, maybe a couple of potential track marks on her arms, and then began examining the rest of her body, starting with her face. When she opened her eyes, eyelids one at a time, she turned and exclaimed to the detectives, they're gone. The eyes had been so carefully removed that there wasn't a mark on her. They didn't know that the eyes were missing until she was on the table, and it had been impossible to tell 
because of like they were closed and they looked so normal. This meant that they had something of an expert on their hands because it's not just a pluck and cut situation. It's hard to get an eyeball out. And not so there are the- six muscles yeah. that hold it in place. And then not to mention the thick optical nerve, which is like almost like a rope or twine. And they'd all been cut cleanly and perfectly severed. I just came across the images of this, uh, which is very disturbing. Yeah. I will put them on the website. Mm-mm. Yeah. So Westphalen and McNear did the smart thing next. They called the FBI Violent Crimes Apprehension Program. Even in 1990, the um, FBI had extensive data on the nation's most unusual and depraved modus operandi. They scoured the records for mutilations matching their victim, but came up pretty much empty-handed. So the police kept their lips shut on this case, and the details of the missing eyes weren't published. Two beat cops, though, around the time, Matthews and Smith, had been assigned to the area that Mary Pratt had been working. Um, This area is kind of bisected by Jefferson Boulevard. Jefferson at the time had fallen from its prior glory days. There used to be lots of shops and gleaming kind of neighborhood and cute, you know, just a cute area. But then the buildings had been shut down, padlocked, shops were shuttered. There was evidence of meth and heroin use um, in the area. People there just kind of downtrodden. Pretty, a pretty grim scene. Mm Mm-hmm. So their police presence was supposed to crack down on small crime in the area, burglaries, shoplifting, vandalism, prostitution. John Matthews was 28 and used to work in an even more violent area, so he was kind of unfazed by the grim scene of Jefferson Boulevard. But Regina Smith, on the other hand, was new at this. She had entered the police academy in 1988, two years prior, inspired by a newspaper story about the need for more black female police officers. Oh, cool. She was teased, of course, in the academy because, you know, toxic masculinity. (laughs) Um, She wanted to make a difference. And racism. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But she was like, nah, I'm here to make a difference. So. All right, you go, girl. She made it through, through all the teasing. They teased her for not being able to do all her push-ups, but she worked through it until she could. That kind of thing. Hmm. Perseverance. Smith kept close record of the sex workers that they encountered in their patrol area around Jefferson, always encouraging them to get out of this lifestyle to work safer jobs. She had kind of acted more of an ally than like an officer really at that point. She was just trying to talk to them and improve their well-being and make sure that they were doing okay. Reminds me of that one woman from SVU, I can't remember her name, that always has the van with like the condoms and stuff. Oh, I can't remember her name either, but yeah. 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 So it's like you can't, yeah. She She was a good one. Yeah. So one morning, Matthews and Smith are out running their routes, and Smith spotted a woman that they knew was named Veronica Rodriguez, and this woman was running up to their car. She pleaded, don't arrest me, I almost just got killed, and she had a a gash in her forehead. Rodriguez told the officers that the night before, she had been picked up by a John, but instead of going to the usual seedy motel called Star Motel, um, he drove her a long way south to a vacant lot and then raped her. The man then tried to kill her, but she was able to fight and escape towards a house nearby. Damn. The man who opened the door just so happened to be someone that she knew. Is it another John? I mean, <laughs> yeah. they don't say that, but like it's kind of later implied. Mm. He also just so happened to know the man who was trying to kill her. Oh. So Matthews and Smith are like, what? No, that's weird. R- they knew Rodriguez was a notorious liar because she has she's always had this thing called pity stories where she'll tell them some sob story about how, you know, downtrodden or bad on her luck, luck she is. And mm-hmm. then the cops would feel sorry for her and leave her alone and not card her in for prostitution charges. So Matthews and Smith are kind of like, yeah, yeah, okay. And they just continue on their way. Like, we're not going to arrest you, but we're going to take everything you say with a grain of salt. Okay. Two days later, on the drive past the CD Star Motel, Matthews and Smith saw Rodriguez again. She was sitting with a middle-aged white man in the cab of a semi-truck. Hmm. 
While Matthews went to one side of the truck to get her out and escort her to the squad car, Smith went to the other side to speak to the man. She asked him for his driver's license, which he gave her. It read, Axton Schindler. Yes, it did. Address, 1035 El Dorado. Smith ran his info through the computer, and all that it showed were some unpaid traffic tickets. So he's not a bad guy or anything, right? He's just not paying his tickets on time. But then suddenly Rodriguez started started shouting, Oh, don't arrest him. That's the man who saved me from the killer. That's him. Aww. Oh. So the officers take a look at the address again, 1035 El Dorado. It's not in South Dallas where Rodriguez' attack allegedly had taken place like she told them earlier. It was Oak Cliff neighborhood, just a five-minute drive from the star. So knowing that Rodriguez was um, an avid drug user, she must have fried part of her brain and isn't forming memories properly. They didn't know what to make of it. This man, though, sort of a nervous dude who spoke incredibly fast, said he... Okay, I put this all in hyphens just for funsies. (laughs) He had no idea what she was talking about. He didn't save her from nobody, and she was just a longtime friend. He was giving her a ride home was all. He ain't never had sex with her, and he was just doing her a favor. (laughs) Damn, Axel. So the officers assumed Rodriguez was lying again. Um, They brought her in on prostitution charges and brought Axton Schindler in for his unpaid tickets, which then he was kind of forced to pay. On a Sunday morning, February 10th, 1991, a second victim was found. Her name was Susan Peterson, age 27, and she was found mostly naked and had been shot in the head, chest, and stomach. Hmm. Her body had been found on the same road that Mary Pratt's body was dumped on, except it was on the other end of the road, and it's a long road, so it's like different sides of town. Okay. So it's in a totally different jurisdiction. Outside of Dallas PD's jurisdiction, it's in the Dallas County Sheriff's Department. That always works out great. Right? They don't mm-hmm. like talking to each other. Yeah. Treading on toes. jurisdictional issues. Yeah. So their detective, Larry Oliver, was given the case, and he hadn't even heard of Mary Pratt's murder mm-hmm. because, remember, Dallas PD kept tight lips about the mutilation. They yeah. didn't want it to really go out there. It was just, just another sex worker kind of, yeah. you know. So Oliver, like Westphalen and McNear, sat in on the autopsy, where again, a pathologist found the expertly severed ocular muscles and nerve cord. Susan Peterson was also missing both of her eyes. What is he doing with them? Yeah. Did we learn this? Where does he put them? Okay, keep going. <laughs> My face is just like, I just bit a lemon. I don't know what to say. <laughs> and you have lots That's of lemons. because lemon so. branch fell off. <laughs> So the pathologist, whose job, right, as a pathologist, you need to be able to take close attention to detail, of course, Yeah, mentioned that the Dallas Police Department had had a similar case just two months earlier. Was she the same pathologist? It doesn't say if it's the same pathologist, but I'm sure pathologists talk to each other because there's like maybe three it's of them. not that in, many. Yeah. Versus like a couple hundred so cops many or cops, something. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they probably like have coffee, like, what's the weirdest thing you saw this week? You know, that, that kind of thing would oh, be my that guess. sounds fun. I would hope they were having cocktails and not coffee. Sure. Yeah. Or maybe coffee cocktails. Coffee An Irish cocktail. coffee. Hello. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. So Oliver goes over to the police department in Dallas to talk to Westphalen after hearing this. A team was assembled then to look over the details and keep track of things in the area. So now news is spreading, but a lot of the detectives are trying to keep it quiet because they know that if the press finds out and the two murders are linked, mm-hmm. then the killer is, you know, if, if it's... Linked that there's like two deaths that are done by the same person, it's now called a serial killer. And they didn't want to use that term mm-hmm. because then it would be like a media frenzy and that would be bad for them to keep track of stuff. I thought it was three murders made you a serial killer. I mean, there had also been other murders of sex workers in the area around the okay. time. So they're kind of like, maybe they're linked with others kind of thing. Okay. But that that's what they were forming this team to look at, really. Okay. 
So, of course, they're trying to keep it hush-hush. They don't want... You're right. It's two or more. Yeah, plural. Mm -hmm. Okay. If the press discovered the two murders were linked and the killer found out that they're keeping an eye on the area and Star Motel um, and Jefferson Boulevard and all of that, right, Mm -hmm. then they might get nervous and start picking up women from another location and make it even harder to track or catch them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the supervisors knew that they had to at least uphold the safety of their citizens, sex workers included, and an article was published on it. So they had hoped that they would yield new leads from this and that maybe someone had some information somewhere, had seen something. They didn't say anything about the mutilation, really. They had just said that there was some surgical precision Mm. in cuts that were made on the bodies, but not the eyes missing specifically. Okay. Well, I mean, they do have to withhold some information. Exactly, to match it. So flyers were put up around the Star Motel for the women to stay safe. Press conference was organized. And yeah, they didn't divulge that the eyes were cut out, but they they definitely said something about the the medical precision that seemed to be involved. This, of course, caused what they didn't want to happen, media frenzy. And the police were then bombarded with calls with tips and stuff. So Matthews and Smith surmised about the case that while working the beat around the Star Motel area, that they had known... Susan Peterson. She was beautiful and cunning. She was pretty young. She was really like a fighter. Mm -hmm. She knew the signs of danger because she had at least been around that long to be able to recognize them. And that to them, that meant that if the killer had gotten her, he could have gotten anybody because she was one of the smart ones, right? Okay. So he also must have been one of her regular customers then because she never would have otherwise let her guard down. Mm -hmm. So now, as their cruiser's pulling up to the curb near the motel, and the women didn't want to keep their distance and stay away from the cops. They're, like, running up to the cop car and passing them lists of suspects that they think might be responsible. We have shit to say. <laughs> yeah, right? They had stories about their encounters, men who were violent, who gave them the creeps, and so on. Um, and sure. Smith had that asked the women to, to stay off the street. List. Right, yeah. Yeah. Here's all the creeps that we know. Smith had asked the women to stay off the street, but they knew one thing. The killers so far had murdered two white women. So the black sex workers felt that they weren't in danger, saying to Smith, he's after the white girls, not us. And so they treated it as an opportunity for them to just get more business in the otherwise empty market now. Because I feel like serial Uh killers don't normally cross race very often. So yeah, not like the sex workers knew that in 1991, but yeah, they might have talked about how, I don't know, if that was like something that was discussed back then i have no idea but yeah i mean i would probably come to the same assumption to be honest even in mind hunter they discussed that early on oh and yeah that's like way back that's then. that's like the 70s yeah yeah pretty sure all right so also in the back of smith and matthew's minds was this story from veronica rodriguez right mm-hmm. she had been telling everyone who would listen a lot of stories since the killings began and these stories tended to migrate a bit she had said that she'd witnessed mary pratt actually being shot then she said that she'd met a man who had bragged about killing her she said that she knew nothing at all about her death so like there's all sorts of words coming out unfortunately her perspective was minimized right because people who spoke with her just assumed that she had been brain fried from from the drugs that she was taking she's like the junkie from dorothy of Fuente, who literally told the police she's she's killing people and buried in their backyard and they're like you're high yeah so what bothered smith and matthews though is that through all of these stories that are deviating from the expected truth was that rodriguez never actually changed the story about her being attacked Okay. Mm-hmm. So now they're wondering, like, did someone actually try and kill her that night? Because that's the only thing that's really sticking through all well, of she this. She had a gash on her head. Yeah. Yeah. So they assumed that, like, she had gotten that in a fight with maybe another sex worker over, Hot like, territory. Damn. Okay. 
or that, you know, she had to fight off some creep, yeah. but like maybe didn't actually. Yeah. So they're wondering, you know, could the man who supposedly saved her, Axton Schindler, actually know the killer too, like she said. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or maybe that he was actually their guy and she was covering for him because he knew where she was at all times and she was afraid of him or whatever, right? Yeah. Sure. So Smith and Matthews told the homicide division about her attack and the possible Axton Schindler connection. But beyond that, there was little else that they could do. It was homicide's territory and they couldn't dive into a murder investigation because there's just like beat cops, a couple of beat cops. Babies. Yep. So they're like, we're not going to step on toes. We're just going to drop these tips off in the office kind of thing. It would be later discovered, though, that their notes just sat in a stack of paperwork amongst other stacks and tips oh. and calls that had been coming in from that media frenzy, mm. and they were buried. So later... Almost like a comment box yeah. versus like an actual... Yeah, their stuff just got mixed in with the common stuff instead of with the PD. Yeah, you might have oh. thought that the police would have brought them up to the top of the the list, yeah. but it, it all got confused. Yeah, it was, it was probably like a drop box. It's probably on paper. Yeah. It's 1991, yeah. 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 So later, Westphalen would even say that he never got the officer's tips in all of the paperwork that he had been able to go through. The name Axton Schindler never was on his list. Meanwhile, special undercover units had been sent to stake out the area and run computer checks on license plates of vehicles that cruised by the motel just to see if the owners might have any sort of criminal record. Westphalen had notebooks full of information. I mean, yeah, right? <laughs> He had notebooks full of information and possible leads, but nothing was really coming up. The police were starting to test out random theories, revenge for sexually transmitted diseases, maybe. Mm-hmm. Superstitions that the eyes permanently reflected the killer's image and that they could be That's used to- such a cool superstition. Right? Like, I oh, didn't know man. it made it to the 90s, but like, that's such a cool superstition. Yeah. Yeah. So someone read something somewhere about that and was like, oh, what if? Yeah. They also thought maybe it was a sexual fantasy or maybe the guy was eating them. Ah. They had no idea why the eyes were being taken. Oh, eating the eyes? They were wondering why the eyes were missing. Oh, so that that was just their theories. They yeah. didn't. Okay. That they were like testing gross. out theories and seeing like what does this track with behavior and stuff like that and what we're seeing. Okay. Eating the, it's jello and it's like a grape skittle that's been in water for a while. No. <laughs> Yeah, the cornea is really, really firm and oh, tough. Oh, God, yeah. You're just like... And the vitreous humor is like... And the legs... Like liquidy jelly Looks like jello. a fucking Skittle. A grape Skittle that's yeah. been in water for a while. Yeah. I don't want to eat any of that. Mm-mm. No thanks. I guess we're all normal. Amongst other theories, they were thinking maybe someone was trying to sell them on the black market. <laughs> to who? Like organ donations and stuff, but getting money. Well, people buy weird shit all the time, oh, yeah. though. I oh, mean, yeah. I get that one. Would the eyes still be okay, though? To trans- It depends on how fresh they were. To transplant, I mean, or maybe they just wanted them in a jar. Okay, yeah, that's. I think eyes shelf. can go something like twenty hours. I could do a jar full of eyes. Yeah, they also thought maybe it was a doctor because of their sur- surgical precision who had like fully lost his marbles and, and was just what's going it called? crazy. Called like an opth- ophthalmologist. Ophthalmologist. Yeah. So they were just trying literally anything and like nothing was sticking to the wall at this point. Early in the uh, morning of March 10th, another body was found, but this time the killer changed his course. This woman's name was Shirley Williams, aged 41, and she was a black sex worker last seen exiting a different CD by the hour motel called the Avalon. Okay, so not only is it a different location, but she's black and then also she's older because the other two mm-hmm. were in their 20s. Yeah, the first one was 33, but still oh, lived okay. home and still, you know, looked fairly young. Well, okay. the white sex workers had changed their pattern. And so if this guy was 
prowling and he had a mm-hmm. need, he would just probably take what was available. Also, eyes are the same yep. no matter what race you are, right? That's to be true. Yeah. Yep. Other than like maybe iris color, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. but like, yeah. Hmm. So Shirley Williams had worked as a housekeeper during the day at the Avalon. Oh. Um, and at night was a part-time sex worker on a nearby street and would bring her Johns back to the same rooms that she cleans. I was going to say she cleans her own rooms. Right. So it's like, hey, no, don't make a mess. I have to clean that later. Like, yeah. I'm just thinking of that, you know, like. <laughs> or she tells the hotel owners, don't worry, I'll clean it up. Oh, yeah. yeah. The woman who had last seen her said she was stumbling, either drunk or high, down the sidewalk after exiting the Avalon that day, wearing blue jeans and a yellow raincoat. She was found 6.20 in the next morning, 6.20 a.m. the next morning, dumped on a residential street half a block from an elementary school. Oh, no. In the heart of the quiet neighborhood of Oak Cliff. Jesus. Oh, God. So, unfortunately, as children were walking to school, no. they saw her crumpled up against the curb. Oak Cliff was not ready for this. No. Called to the scene, Westphalen asked the examiner there to check her eyes, also gone. Oh. The following autopsy on Shirley Williams' body would show that the surgery had been been hurried. Oh, okay. So this time, he's getting a little sloppy. There was a broken tip of an X-Acto blade found embedded in the skin near her right eye, but there were still no witnesses or murder weapon or fingerprints or anything, right? I can't mm-hmm. believe you're freaking me an eye murder. <laughs> <laughs> was she- I'm sorry. Was she also shot? I assumed she had been shot. Yeah. Yeah. Her eyes are missing. That's the bigger issue yes. here. Dead sex worker dumped on the street after the fact, shot, eyes missing. So, worse though, the killer had now murdered a black woman. He had moved Mm -hmm. locations, just like they were afraid of. Publicity surrounding the case sent the murderer away from the Star Motel and his South Dallas dumping ground. And now the Avalon. And now who knows if he might strike there again or anywhere. So after Shirley Williams was found, there was a mass exodus of sex workers leaving the area. They told Smith and Matthews that they were leaving Davis... uh, Davis. (laughs) Dallas. That they're leaving Dallas altogether. The Davis sex workers, though, and if they exist, it's probably just OnlyFans. OnlyFans is a a safer way to do it, to be honest. Yeah. So several sex workers told Smith and Matthews that they were leaving Dallas altogether. A few women, so desperate for money that they had no other option, moved their work to a street corner next to the home of a man who had promised to serve as their lookout and bodyguard should anything go wrong. I think I'd move close to the police station. But they can't. Because it's still illegal. Uh, yeah, right. So one night, Matthews and Smith spoke with Brenda White, an older sex worker who didn't get along with the other women. Brenda. <laughs> Brenda. <laughs> they found her because she had been walking alone on another block entirely, and the officers decided to stop and make sure that she was okay and that she knew about the murders and the danger out there. She informed mm-hmm. them that, yes, she was aware. She's trying to save money to be able to get out and that she had just use- had to use mace on a John who had become violent with her a few days prior. Okay. Mm. I have I have predictions about who this white knight that's going to protect the sex workers are. Mm-hmm. By her statement, he drove a dark station wagon and had pulled up alongside her, so she hopped in the car like a usual customer. Okay. He was a well-built white man, salt and pepper hair, cowboy boots, blue jeans. She described him to them, basically, you know, handsome guy, didn't seem any, like anything was off. She had wanted to go to the nearby motel, but the man said no. He had a spot that they could use. But knowing better from experience, right, because she's been yeah. in mm-hmm. for a while, she's 41. Jesus. Brenda only ever allowed Johns to be able to take her to known motels, and so she was like, nah, let me out. Um, suddenly, 
she says, mm. quote, a change came over his face. It was like mm. anger, rage. He said, I hate whores. I'm going to kill all of you motherfucking whores. Wow. And before he had a chance to grab her, she sprayed mace into his face, threw open the door, and jumped out, breaking the heel of one of her favorite shoes. All right, Brenda. I'll give you a pass as a Brenda. Brenda's not messing around. No, I... Brenda's... Brenda knows. She had mace with her. So like, she knows. Yeah. She had rules yeah. that she was going to stick to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So the next morning, after hearing all of this... Smith turns to Matthews and is like, we need to run a computer check on this Axton guy. Mm-hmm. So she and Matthews go down to the Dallas County Constable's office to use their computer because it has more access to, like, the majority of the files that are in the area rather than just their local one. Okay. Okay. And Walter Cook, the deputy constable on duty there at the time, helped them with the system. He typed in Schindler's address from the driver's license that they had written down, 1035 El Dorado, but the name Fred Albright popped up as the owner of the property. So they're like, Fred Albright, who's that? Where's Axton? Mm -hmm. And they follow this rabbit hole. Now looking at Fred Albright's records, it turned out that this Fred guy also owned property on a street called Cotton Valley, the same one in South Dallas where the two bodies were first found. Then the final record on Fred, of course, came up that he had died of a heart attack in 1986. So then they're like, shit, we're following the trail of a dead man. Yeah. Oh my God. Matthews and Smith let out a deep sigh, and they're just staring at the screen where it's like, nope, he's dead. I'm so but then after a pause, for them. Right? Yeah. yeah. <sighs> after a pause, though, Cook says to them softly, quote, maybe this has something to do with a man named Charles Albright. He turns to them and explains how several weeks prior, he had gotten a call from an anonymous woman saying that she had been friends with Mary Pratt. Mary had introduced her to this nice man and that they had briefly dated. He was kind, but had some weird obsession with eyes. But she wouldn't explain any more than that. She also said that he kept exacto blades in his attic and that she finally told him that the man's name was Charles Albright. Hmm. This was extremely serendipitous because if they'd had any other deputy other than Cook on duty that day, the connection wouldn't have been made that easily. Hmm. So Schindler and Albright were connected. Perhaps Albright was Schindler's friend, they thought, the one who tried to kill Veronica Rodriguez and sent Mm -hmm. her running into the house that was adjacent to the lot. And that was the house that Albright had owned and was renting out. To Schindler. Yeah. They discovered on file um, that his his criminal record had a string of thefts, burglaries, forgeries, and a charge of sexual intercourse with a minor. Wait, wait, wait. That's Charles, not Axelrod. Yeah. (laughs) What's his name? Schindler. Axton. Okay. Yeah. They're looking at Albright's criminal record and found all of this. That makes Mm -hmm. sense. The clerk then pulled out a mugshot of Albright from one of his charges, and um, this photo was of a rather handsome, well-built man with grayish or salt and pepper hair, just like mm-hmm. the man that Brenda White had, ex- had described to them. So on their way home, <laughs> on their way to the homicide department, <laughs> it's, oh my god, my brain. You know what? <laughs> on their way home. It's like when I drive to work and I get into the parking garage and I open my Spotify and it tells me that I'm home. <laughs> Welcome home. It says welcome home. You're at home right now. And I'm like, am I at work, you asshole? <laughs> so I think it might be the same for homicide detectives. Okay. Yeah. yeah. They're like, I'm home now. I spend all of my time here. Yeah. <laughs> On their way to the homicide department, Matthews and Smith rehearsed everything that they had. They had to be prepared with every piece of the puzzle, right? Like, right, ready to say, because they're sharing this with the homicide department and they're just beat cops. Yeah. The two beat cops explain their findings to Westphalen, 
and he said that they might be onto something. He put together a photo lineup of six mugshots and told them to show it to this Brenda White. So immediately they go and they track her down on her usual street corner and asked her if she recognized any of the men in the mugshot lineup. She immediately pointed to Albright's photo and said that that was the man who attacked her. Then they showed the same lineup to Veronica Rodriguez. Mm -hmm. According to Matthews, when Rodriguez had flipped to the third picture, which was Albright's, she was visibly shaken and suddenly fearful. She refused to identify anyone. Matthews called Westphalen um, on a nearby phone with bad news. And Rodriguez is just like said that he, that she was so afraid of the killer. She won't pick out his picture. Mm -hmm. So Westphalen says, we'll just bring her to me. So they bring her on down. No, (laughs) they bring her on down. Because at this point, like, she's working a corner. So they can pick her up basically at any time. so, but, like, yeah. there's a murderer. There's, like, bigger issues here. Yeah. Wes Phelan had known, though, that they needed two positive photo IDs to be able to bring murder charges and a search warrant to Albright's doorstep. Okay. So he was like, we're not going to mess around with this. Okay. So Smith and Matthews brought her downtown. Rodriguez was still so shaken that she at first refused to cooperate. Wes Phelan told her, look, quote, this is so easy. Pick out the picture of the guy who assaulted you and we'll get him and put him in jail where he can't hurt you. Okay, that's nicer than I thought. Yeah. Yeah. So she took some deep breaths, took another look at the photos, and then turned over the photo of Albright and signed her name on it. Okay, so two IDs. Yep. At 2.30 in the morning on March 22nd, a team of officers burst through the front door of 1035 El Dorado. Albright was handcuffed and led away without a single word to Dixie. Dixie's like, the fuck is happening? Dixie. Yeah. In the middle of the night At and she's like screaming. In the morning? Yep. Yeah. Uh, the she's fuck like you screaming do? and he doesn't say a word I, to her. No one. Oh my God. I do feel bad for Dixie. Yeah. I wonder if he even looked at her though. I wonder if he right? ever cared about her. Yeah. I mean, he did do a lot of cutesy romantic gestures with her and moved her down there from Arkansas and everything. I guess so. But like he still was seeing sex workers. And to me, that's a no, no. Yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let me just say, Andrew, are you listening? <laughs> that aside, That's I think he no-no. still cared about Dixie, but like definitely cared about himself more. Yeah, yeah, for fucking sure. Despite long hours in the interrogation room, Albright refused to confess to anything. He's he acted smart. as though he'd never heard of the names of their murdered wi- women. Police searched through every square inch of his house and all of the South Dallas properties. They searched um, his house specifically six times, and although they produced an array of interesting items like carpenters, woodworking blades, exacto knives, a copy of Grey's Anatomy, at least a, t- <laughs> a dozen true crime books, I have books, all which of those like, things in my house right now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> they never came up with anything that was that was like even more concrete, and they never found any eyeballs. Oh God, where are the fucking eyeballs? Behind his hand-built wooden fireplace mantle, they found a secret compartment filled with pistols and rifles. Wow. Okay. But none of these turned out to be the murder weapon. That's huh. worse, to be honest. <laughs> what were they? They knew that it was a forty-four caliber, and they that wasn't anywhere. Okay. Then there was the timeline. So Dixie had claimed that on the nights in question, Charlie did not leave the house early for his paper route and that he always came home on time. He, she was asleep. Yeah. I mean, maybe she was a light sleeper and like was jostled awake and could tell. Or maybe she slept like my husband and had no idea. Or maybe he gave her sleeping pills so she would never know otherwise. Oh my God. (laughs) In her ice cream. Oh God. Oh my God. So... As the trial date arrived, Veronica Rodriguez was then afraid and decided to testify as a witness for the defense. Yeesh. 
Yeah. She claimed that she and Albright had never been together and that Westphalen had coerced her into picking out his photo from the lineup. Mm. Axton Schindler continued to deny also that he had saved Rodriguez from Albright, but they did have something. So for the first time in history, the DA's office was going to go for a murder conviction based solely on hair evidence. Okay. Hard to do. is not great evidence. Yeah. And I don't think you can even do anymore. Right. It's not DNA, which is the gold standard, right? But Mm -hmm. they didn't really have that at their fingertips like they do now. Yeah. After Allwright's arrest, the city's forensic lab reported that there were hairs found on the bodies of the dead sex workers that were similar to Allwright's head and pubic hair. Lab technicians said that hairs found on the blankets pulled from the back of Allwright's pickup truck also matched the hair samples from their victims. And so hairs matching Shirley Williams were also found in Albright's vacuum that he had used prior to clean out his vehicle. Hmm. Oh. So then there were reports from officers John Matthews and Regina Smith. The officers found a woman named Tina Connolly who had claimed that Albright was one of her regular afternoon customers on Fort Worth Boulevard. She explained hmm. that he had never picked her up at night, though, but she had seen him out one time at night, which she remembered as being odd. And that was the night that Shirley Williams was taken from Fort Worth Boulevard Mm. near the Avalon. So Connolly showed uh, Matthews and Smith um, a secluded field near Fort Worth Boulevard where Albright used to take her for sex. And there they discovered a yellow raincoat and a blanket. (gasps) Hairs on the raincoat and blanket matched Albright's hair. Okay. So pretty close there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Albright's defense attorney, Brad Lawler tried to convince the jury that the evidence was purely circumstantial. He said the killer was probably that Schindler character who just so happened to skip town right before the trial started. But is yeah. Schindler's hair on all the bodies? Yeah. West Phelan had interrogated Schindler and found no evidence against him. There was only a single empty box of forty four caliber bullets behind the house that he was in. The rental, right? That was actually it's Albright's. The rental. Yeah. yeah. And the box could have just been easily dropped from Albright, too. So, like, sure. Not great. Or left there on purpose by Albright. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't look great that Schindler jumped ship and left town, but. Yeah. I mean, he's already a nervous dude and hates the government. Mm hmm. When Schindler's and Albright's photos were being shown to dozens of sex workers, none recognized Schindler at all. But they okay. could all, almost all, point and recognize Albright. Because he had a lot of friends. He had a lot of lady friends. There were never any hairs found on any of the victims that could be linked to Schindler. And okay. most importantly, no one who had ever met Schindler could imagine that this nervous, jumpy man would have any of the skill or steady hands that would be required to perfectly sever a set of human eyes without damaging the eyelids. Because he talked too fast. <laughs> I mean, he's just like a real jittery guy, like... He could have been calm around dead bodies, though. We don't know. Yeah, that's true. It's live people that make him nervous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, what's well, beneath all that trash in his house? Ew. Aw. Probably a bunch of dead rats. Mm. Hopefully no eyes. It was December 19th when the jury returned with a verdict. Albright was found guilty and given a life sentence. Okay. Dixie collapsed in the courtroom. Oh, Dixie. I bet. Dixie needs to go to therapy. Mm-hmm. Dixie needs to meet Betty. Yeah. So they should be friends. They should. We survived this asshole, friends. Yeah. yeah. Later, a few of his friends from the softball team would explain that they had never and could never have imagined a man so kind and gentle and friendly as Albright would be capable of those things. Albright had been the peacekeeper 
I was going to say, how many serial killers like their neighbors and say, but he was such a nice guy. He was so nice. Yeah. He was so nice. And he never tried to kill a softball friend, so. Yeah. No one had ever seen him upset, said the team manager. There was only ever one incident that his teammates saw and like where he actually got mad. At the end of one game, the, set- the men were all sitting around the ballpark, hanging out, eating candy that Charlie had brought them, when two women in a car drove by slowly. Some of the players joked that the women must be sex workers and shouted, Hey, Charlie, you're single. Why don't you take after them whores? Albright growled back, Hell, I'd kill him if I could. Stunned, they all turned towards their mild-mannered friend, who was scowling, and they're like, (laughs) What do you mean? What'd you say, Charlie? One of them said, in an effort to light the mood, You've got to have whores. It keeps men from chasing after the married women. All right. Don't like Uh, this guy either. No. But, I mean, it's, like, late 80s, 90s with, you know, guys in Texas. Ah, God. Yeah. To which Albright said, the hell it does. And then he marched off to his car and left. So everyone's like, whoa, that was weird. They would ask him later what was up with that, and he would explain to them that it was a sensitive topic for him because his birth mother had been a prostitute, though this wasn't substantiated. Oh. Oh. It was apparent that his birth mother wasn't the young, promising, intelligent law student like Dell had told him mm-hmm. when he was growing up. But who's to say that she wasn't? Because who knows what Albright had solidified in his mind. Yeah. Either yeah. way, he did follow up on his words to his friends, what he had said that day. And he had put himself in the perfect situation to be able to pull it off with the facade of being a gentleman around town, an excuse with his paper route to be out in the middle of the night Sex workers all around town knew and trusted him um, and multiple properties that he had uninhabited around Dallas to be able to take them to. Also, going back to, like, his um, softball friends saying they'd never seen him angry. Right. This doesn't seem like an anger crime. No. Mm -mm. So, like, so that doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. The flaw that he didn't notice, though, in all of his planning was his strange tenant, Axton Schindler, the tenant that everyone around him had said wasn't worth the trouble that he should evict them. Schindler, the dude who had despised the government so much that he would refuse to have running water and electricity in the house, mm-hmm. and that even lot, more, dude. didn't want them to know the real place where he lived. As he liked to say, he preferred to keep his privacy, and he wanted the government to stay out of his business. Sovereign citizen. So instead, <laughs> he put down 1035 El Dorado, the address for Charles Frederick Albright. And that's what I've got. He went away for life. He died in, actually okay, in uh, that's 2020. that's what need to know. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, did I not say that? That he got life? No. No, you did. Oh, you did? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Might be. Albright was found guilty and given a life sentence. Yep. Okay. And that, and then Dixie was like, oh, no, and collapsed. Oh, right. I got distracted <laughs> by Dixie fainting because yeah. I was concerned <laughs> for Dixie. I want Dixie to be okay. Yeah. Because I feel like doing this podcast... Any fucking one of us could have dated a serial killer at any oh time. Oh, my God. Yeah. Or are currently. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Uh, so, I say uh, my sweet husband is, like, totally passed out in the chair. No. <laughs> he was 87 when he died in August 22nd, 2020. So he spent a decent amount of time in jail, which I feel, honestly, costly. But I think it's the best way. Because it's, like, miserable. I'm curious as to, like, what happened in the more formidable years, right? Like, what do we not know about? Because this killing spree, he was 57. Yeah, he was old. 
Right. And so he had all this like weird stuff going on, you know, in his youth and stuff like what happened? Precisely. What were you doing in your middle ages, sir? Like, did you just wake up one day? Because obviously he's always been obsessed with eyes. And he's always been somewhat of a con man and like pulling the wool over other people. So. Right. So what else fucking happened? What else did he do that we don't know about? Like, I feel like there's a big gap. He also had that time between Betty and Dixie, too, or mm-hmm. fuck he, knows. he dated around, and there was that woman who had made that phone call. Yeah. They should also go to all of the properties that he owned and dig up the yards. Yeah. Or, like, you know, scan the yards with that thing. Yep. So we never found out where the eyes went. We never found out. And there was a reporter who visited him in prison, and he was like... He was adamant that it still wasn't him. Mm. There was a young psychiatrist who had visited. His mom had asked him to come in, like, check out her son because at this point, like, she's, I'm doing everything right. And he keeps stealing stuff, you know, like, she's having Mm -hmm. problems with him. Oh, yeah. And the psychiatrist noted that he was so easily able to sever, like, reality from what he wanted people to perceive of himself so that when he talked to them, it was as if he actually believed what he was telling them was the truth. Okay. So he might be able to pass a lie detector test. Yeah. Like he was just that sure of himself at that point. Like, no, Mm -hmm. I didn't steal that, even though like your backpack's full of it. So. (laughs) It's like my daughter. (laughs) Yeah. With cookies. And keys. (laughs) And keys. (laughs) Oh, the fucking keys, man. So since he was born on August 10th, Charles Albright was a Leo. He certainly involved being the center of attention and yeah. was a ridiculously social dude. Very prideful. Yeah. yeah. So Leo's need and thrive on respect, attention, praise, applause, all of that from other people. And if they don't get it, their self-esteem suffers. So that mm-hmm. kind of explains, you know, how he was the center of attention and the prankster and trying to be entertaining oh, to yeah, everybody he growing that. up. Oh, yeah. And maybe one of the, these sex workers did not think he was a center of attention yeah or said something that like offended him and you're not that great somewhere. yeah <laughs> like you're fine trust me i have a end of a lot to compare you to <laughs> um it's also the emotionally starved leo that can morph into a person that no one wants to be around <sighs> yeah he sounds emotionally starved because i don't feel like dixie was giving him that much mm-hmm leos also have that intrinsic need to be loved um and when their need for love isn't met they become greedy and prone to seeking instant gratification. All right. I'll take it back. Sex workers. I yeah. do think Dixie probably did love him. Yeah. I mean, she wouldn't have fainted in the courtroom it otherwise. It wasn't enough for some reason. Yeah. Could you imagine, though, like being that woman and having no idea that your gentle, loving husband. Salamander hunting dude. Yeah. I want to die. Okay. Like, oh my I would God. never date again. <laughs> nope. Ever in a million fuck. You're like, I was that I bad of a judge of character. I can never trust myself. Sex workers, if I needed to. But, like, I'd pay them. Not my I would them. become St. Gertrude. Oh. I would just get cats and Kitty. buy myself with my cats. I would buy more vibrators. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. That's so... If he was actually... We don't know from Dixie's side of things whether he ever really change from when he was wooing her mm-hmm. so maybe he did get a little more meh <laughs> what meh meh i don't know how to describe it but maybe he did get a little more like 
you know, he didn't keep the romance going and maybe he got a little bit more, like, short with her or whatnot. But, mm, like... Yeah. Well, because he was running out on her several times a day, though, because that, that one sex worker said yeah. that he was her afternoon customer and then... I mean, he always had excuses because he was I running errands. He had, was part of two sports teams. Mm-hmm. He, yeah, he, he always had something that he was doing around the neighborhood, helping someone, you know, and... Oak Cliff was a five-minute drive from the first locations, so it's, like, not that far-fetched. Yeah. And honestly, I've been a trusting person. Yeah. It's like, I don't even know where you are for, like, the last hour because it's not my job. Yeah. I don't know. But, like, I don't want to be the person that's, like, you got to, you know. Yeah. Put a tracker on your car, put a tracker on your phone. Like, I don't want to That's not legal. (laughs) Well, you know, but yeah, I do feel, I feel bad for Dixie and Veronica, who was not believed for so long. Yeah. Yeah. I've referenced this website before. There is a Criminal Minds fandom wiki page that they go over Criminal Minds cases and then like Mm -hmm. link them to real life cases and stuff like that. It's a very interesting website, but so... The episode that you referenced earlier was Earl Buford, and it's tied to this dude. There's a lot of criminal minds that have that are like based on. They truth. do. I love it. I do too, but like I didn't know this one at all. Yeah, loosely based, but loosely. Yeah, he did not put them into taxidermy. They did find the eyes. I'm still like, what the fuck did he do with those eyes? That's just mm. that does bother me because he went through all the trouble of harvesting them yeah, yeah they weren't just scooped right they it was were like a very surgically removed precise thing that he did and he left with two eyes i'm just glad there weren't buttons in the sockets very true i've been thinking about it and i feel like if i was the back 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 to the beginning of this episode i feel like i'd probably prefer the portrait of me six feet tall with buttons for eyes than my regular eyes <laughs> And I definitely put it in the bedroom (laughs) and make whoever's fucking me look at it. (laughs) It's like, this is the ultimate test. Are you still hard? (laughs) It's probably a bad sign, but (laughs) I just Or they have their eyes on the prize. It's just such a big portrait. It just seems so egotistical. Like, with the button eyes, at least it's kind of unique. (laughs) Artsy. All right, I have one more thing to say. It involves Schindler, and it involves the movie Schindler's List, which I have not been able to stop thinking about because I had the best sex dream of my life after watching Schindler's List. (laughs) With somebody from the movie, or? With Liam Neeson, me and Schindler. We were saving the Jews, and then we would fuck, and then we'd save the Oh, wow. It was a whole thing. It was a really good, it was the best sex dream I've ever had. Okay. So, you can tell us your best sex dream <laughs> at... <laughs> I was just going to say, I referenced Liam Neeson in the last episode because of my mom. <laughs> so now I'm... Oh, no. Hi, Pearl. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know if I want people to share with me their sex dreams. I don't know. I'm open, but I'm not giving you my email. Where do you think the eyeballs went? That's a good question, too. That is a, a much better question. So, yes, we'd love to hear from you if you would like to tell us 
where you believe the eyeballs went to. Um, you can connect with us on Twitter at True Trine, on Instagram at True Crime Trine, on Facebook at TCT Podcast. You can email us directly at truecrimetrine at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.truecrimetrine.com. And just real quick before we say goodnight is that my mom's birthday will be the same week this episode airs. Let me read for her. So my mom, who is just the coolest person. Oh, and it's going to be Aries season. It's Aries season. Duh. And so actually on April 2nd, the sun in Aries will be conjunct with Mercury in Aries. And I really, really love this because this is a chatty aspect (laughs) and it encourages you to be sociable and talk with people and catch up with people that you haven't talked to in a while. One of my most favorite things about my mom is that she's never met a stranger. (laughs) I believe it. Mm-hmm. she's just always so sociable so on her birthday it's going to be a really great day to be sociable so happy birthday mom i love you have a good conversation yeah, yeah. damn okay all right so do we stop recording or no bye 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 oh i did have a quote oh oh god this is gonna be a, Hello. a cluster fuck <laughs> Hello again. (laughs) Paula Poundstone, comedian. The problem with cats is that they get the same look whether they see a moth or an axe murderer. Oh. They are not very good guard cats. No, they're not. But yeah. Bye. Bye. Music for our podcast was handcrafted by the talented and creative minds of Mike Warren and Pete Ortega. Our artwork was imagined and skillfully designed by the lovely Sarah Guest. As for production, well, they call me post-production. Show notes are available upon request. Just email truecrimetrine at gmail.com. Join us again next week for another tantalizing episode.